0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
2: Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today, we are taking a trip north. Uh, We are bringing you some recordings from a few interviews I did earlier this summer up in Hyde Park at the Culinary Institute of America, we sat down with the purchasing team there, Brad Matthews and uh, Jeffrey Menard, to talk a little bit about how they make decisions for the culinary school. Really uh, an interesting, uh, beautiful campus. Uh, they do a full bachelor's programs for folks in the culinary arts, sending cooks and people working in food out across the country and uh, and often the world. Uh, Very rigorous program, very big campus. Uh, They do a lot of different things up there from running a multitude of restaurants to the classrooms where students are learning the culinary techniques. So it was interesting to hear a little bit about how, because they're located in the Hudson Valley, they've been able to work towards impacting the local agriculture scene there. Roughly, um, Hyde Park campus purchases about half a million dollars a year in produce, dairy, eggs, meat, mushrooms, syrup, honey, and more. Although I know there is room to grow that number, and we hope they will. But stay tuned. We're going to be bringing you a conversation we had with Brad and Jeff that will give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes of what makes the purchasing world work or not work, and some of the successes and challenges they've had with regards to sourcing locally. So thanks so much. And let's take a listen. All right, you are tuned into the Farm Report, and today we are coming to you from deep in the bowels of the Culinary uh, Institute of America, the CIA. <laughs> I'm sitting in uh, the office of the Director of Purchasing and Storeroom Operations uh, with Brad Matthews, and uh, stay tuned. We're going to learn a little bit more about uh, how he spends almost. Om- Almost $7 million, upwards of $7 million a year um, bringing food into the program for the students uh, to teach and for folks to eat in the restaurants. So hang tight. Uh, we'll be right back.
3: My name is Brad Matthews. I'm Director of Purchasing and Storeroom Operations at the Culinary Institute.
2: So, Brad, you started uh, at the CIA at, at the end of 89? Yes. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about kind of what the purchasing landscape looked like when you first joined the team here.
3: Uh, We had too many vendors of the wrong kind, not enough local people. Uh, It was found too hard at that time to find farmers, to find a way to get your needs known in advance. And But what I noticed was the quality of the food didn't taste the same as it did from the farms that I grew up surrounded by in this area. And so we made a commitment to, as much as fiscally possible, to expand our support of our neighbors, which keeps more farms and business in the Hudson Valley instead of turning them into strip malls. But it also provided us with a much better product. Uh, we used to joke with one of my farmers, you know, product product's still warm from the morning sun when it came in here, you know, co- dew-covered, you know.
2: Yeah, right? <laughs> like, that's the ideal. <laughs> right, and it,
3: and it was. I remember uh, a, one farmer who sadly is, is uh, no longer with us, he had peaches the size of a softball. And you would hold them, and the juice would bubble up around the stem, and the smell was... And once my chefs found out that we had this guy, they would find out when he was coming and they would be meeting his truck at the dock.
2: <laughs>
3: because that's the quality of produce we could get. And that's what we were after. Right. And we went from marginal, sporadic, supportive farms, usually when they would back a pickup truck up to the dock and ask you, whoever was here, would we take it? And they weren't getting the proper dollars for their product, and we weren't getting the proper product. So we went. We had to make it more business-like, even though it was done in a neighborly support sure. guy. Okay.
2: Um So, like, what have you seen over the years as like some of the other kind of like infrastructure tools that have facilitated some of that relate some of those relationships, like? Um, are farmers using different communication methods? Is there other players kind of on the field who are supporting that? <laughs> so he's, he's pulling out his cell phone. <laughs> Tell me more.
3: <laughs> now, farmers are available when you need them. You used to have to get them at six in the morning or six at night. Or you leave a message on the machine, and if they came in at lunchtime, maybe you would get it. So if they didn't know what you needed in advance and we didn't know if we were getting it in advance. so the cell phone changed the world was, and but it definitely changed how I was able to work with even my my local fishmonger this is how we communicate uh, and then now the web like I told you that F2T program
2: yeah so what is F2T for people who aren't familiar it's
3: a farm two tables and uh this was a woman who was a student here at one time um, but got out of cooking and went into selling wine and then she went into uh, came up with this idea of connecting with farmers and on the web setting them up on the web so at any time my buyers can go online see exactly what is available and what quantity and at what price. Sure and then they set up all their orders, and once once that order is in, that product is guaranteed you. Whereas before, sometimes you would tell a farmer what you need, and if you had a good day at the farm stand, you might not have gotten your right. product. <laughs> this way it's done, it's set, uh, it saves the buyers an incredible amount of time, it saves my doc a huge amount of time, it saves finance and accounts payable, and you know, all those things makes everything much more efficient right and it works better for the farmer because he's spending his time in his field growing what he should be doing and not driving around in his pickup truck banging on the door for money right exactly <laughs> um so that that has helped everything what what as i told you earlier what it takes away is that personal you know it it I try to enforce that with with my guys, that even though they're buying it through FTT, they need to still talk to those farmers, they still need to have that personal relationship because it just works better for everybody that
2: way. Yeah, sure. And I want to be able to kind of paint the picture of the kind of complexity of the operation here at CIA for folks, so can you give us, um, just in some broad strokes, um, an outline of Kind of what types and what volume of food are kind of coming through uh, the the dock here on a kind of daily, weekly basis?
3: We have we have everything from basic skills classes right up to white tablecloth restaurants. So the variety, and we also have a full baking program. We have global programs, so we have cuisines of Asia, Mediterranean. Um, the South America, all the Americas. So the variety, the dollar volume here is, is large. It's, we probably do somewhere around $7 million a year right now. But that's easy. It's the variety. You know, right. We can have 3,000 different SKUs here. And that variety changes and shrinks with the seasons, obviously. We, we buy more local, more produce during the summer. Um, but and then the also all challenges we may need as little as a pound or two of things. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to get vendors to want to go too far out of their way to sell you a pound of raw ram. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs>
3: so uh, we, you know, we have full butcher shop, full fish kitchen, a multitude of bake shops, five public restaurants. Plus, all this range of classes with the pie program where you start in making stocks and learning knife cuts all the way up to the restaurant. So, it's... it's inc- And we do a graduation every three weeks.
2: Right. <laughs> so, lots of moving parts.
3: Lots of moving parts. When I first came here, I was probably here two years before I wasn't in some minor form of panic. <laughs> 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 because it's just so much to grasp. But... Yeah. Uh, what is clear to us is that if we don't do our job right here, mm-hmm. nothing else in this building works.
2: Yeah, it starts with you. Like.
3: Right. If if we're not putting... Those students pay a great deal of money and, and invest a great deal of themselves to come here. And if we don't put the right product in front of them when they need it and show them what it's supposed to be, then they're not going to get the chance to work with that product learn from that product. Yeah. So it, it's, it's rewarding... In challenging the how autism
2: <laughs> <laughs> So as we were kind of walking through the produce area, I know we, we passed a box of tomatoes from McEnroe Farms, which is a farm that I'm familiar with. I know they do sell down at the New York City green markets and you, you see them um, around. What for, for farmers or people who want to be for farmers someday? like what is your what would be like your advice to them as a as someone who leads such a like large-scale purchasing operation like um what 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 helps it what helps you kind of work with them like what are the the tools or the the ways to approach if if people want to get involved with or think about kind of making entree into more of like an institutional system you
3: need to find out what your cu- what your customers in that area want mm-hmm. number one it doesn't matter if you can grow a ton of any one thing well if you can't sell it right so you need to find out what the market is what what you, and what you can do better than somebody else i mentioned sky farms his lettuce and his salad mixes are amazing so that's that's his that's what he does right um, McEnroe uh can has these phenomenal greenhouses where he has it looks like a forest inside and they're tomato plants so by the time the warm weather comes is he's already got everything growing and ready to go and so he can that's his niche right um so find your niche and then find out which restaurants in your area can support what you do. But also be open to growing what they want.
2: Right. Right. That makes sense. Um.
3: The other thing they need to do is be where they say they're going to be when they say they're going to be there. Having Not in my, my lunch menu. doesn't help when the farmer shows up at 2 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs>
2: sure just kind of like <laughs> like basic <laughs> right.
3: if you you know and that's always been the struggle because they need to be in the field when they need to be in the field and i understand that but on the same token if i promise three chefs i will have this product for you on tuesday morning it better not show up on tuesday night
2: Right. Because there's a lot of wheels turning to like produce in that area. So you had mentioned that you thought you guys were somewhere between like 10 and 15 percent of like regional procurement. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And um, I'm wondering if we can talk uh, just briefly about kind of like the, so like the produce end of things, I think I understand pretty well. But then I think when you turn around and you're looking at like meat or fish, Things um, become a little bit more complicated ultimately because there's more players involved. You know, there's a slaughter facility, there's, I know you do some butchery here, um, but obviously you're not butchering everything you're using in house. Um, Most of it. Oh, really? So, so when you, so can I mean, you. Not, fr-
3: from, not from quarters and stuff like that, but from, from
2: primals. From primals. Right. So, can you talk a little bit about kind of. Um, with your eye towards like meat and, and fish in particular, like, have you seen similar types of changes uh, over the course of your tenure with with regards to how you're able to source and who you're able to source from, or do you think that like meat and fish are kind of different than produce? Fish
3: hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, I have chefs that ask for uh, a seven pound bass for six months, well, the response is, it's an ocean, not a shoe store, you know, I mean, we don't grow them, <laughs> so you got to be what's in the market, Yeah. and that will never change, uh, I mean, farm fish is, you know, aquaculture is changing, and it has to, but uh, there's a local fish farm for now, you know, there's never one before, and we're getting these incredible steelhead trout mm-hmm. twice a week 24 hours out of water at a good price right so that changed that much has changed but some of the older aquaculture fish still that doesn't have the flavor or the appeal or the market value that wild striped bass does sure um, so the fish market still is you find rectal mongers people you can trust know where your fish is coming from and who can give you the best service mm-hmm. and that's even more important than the price although with fish price is very important but it's getting that service and that trust that, that matters
2: Is that because it's so perishable
3: or yeah, yeah. Okay. perishability um, we're fortunate here that we buy all whole ground fish so the idea of them sneaking other species in and, and all the stuff you hear in the news, we don't run into that. Right. Uh, I don't have to worry if it's a red snapper. If I open the box, I know it's a right. red snapper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the fish market hasn't really changed much. Um, things have improved somewhat as to, again, how quickly you can know what's on the boat to getting it here. mm mm-hmm. uh, it's, there are better places, the easier places to get fish where that's available, without just counting on somebody walking down to Hunts Point and going through the the process of hoping something good there in quality. Right. Um, meat has changed in that there are more locals. You know, there's more grass-fed. There's more uh, free-range birds. There's more uh, people raising game birds, and so that has changed somewhat. But the basic the bulk of tonnage I of mean it's still done basically the
2: same. same way yeah um, and I guess I would similar question for people for thinking about like proteins and like being able to work with proteins on a more regional level are there things that you would recommend or, or like think like oh man if we had more regional farmers doing XYZ or being able to supply XYZ
3: being open to what that farmer has hmm um you know if you want a guy to raise Angus in your area and you want to buy from him, but all you want is a strip loin.
2: It's tough.
3: Right. What's we what do know, with the rest of the cow? Yeah, what are you gonna do with the rest of the cow? He needs to move that animal. Now we don't buy whole animals here, but we do try to support like quarters and and what we you know, sometimes our chefs would put it on as a market, local market beef. Mm-hmm. So, so
2: a chef can ask specifically for that,
3: right? Okay. So they can, they can change the preparation on that menu item to what is available at that time. You know, if you want your local to have local grass fed stuff, then you need to use the whole item. It sounds obvious, but it's not always the way people see it. Yeah, sure. You know, I just want ribs and and loins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Then you're going to pay seventeen thousand dollars for those things, or so the farmer can afford to, you know, practically give away the rest of the animal, or you need to be able to work with the product that's available. Yeah, I
2: think that's definitely a challenging thing with beef because. I I remember that from early in my career. I was working at a corned beef place. I'm like, why don't we just buy all local briskets? And the chef was like, what do they do with the rest of the cow? We go through hundreds of briskets a day. Like, how do you think it works, kid? There's another... 18 1,900 pounds. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> open a hamburger stand? <laughs> um, and are you, like, what is your engagement with, like, students with regards to, like, how do they learn about purchasing and procurement? What's the, is that like, how does that work its way into the curriculum?
3: That is in the curriculum. I don't teach it. There are people here that teach it. One of them was one of my farmers at one time, and he's now teaching product ID here Um, so but our doors are open Mm -hmm. we're not uh, you know like a hotel where we lock down the storeroom except for a couple hours a day students are in here all the time Uh, like you heard when you came in we asked them to leave their bags out front (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they walk through they ask questions they're available Uh, Jeffrey and Anthony are always fielding questions Um, they learn learn the basics of purchasing from their instructors, but uh, they're also welcome on the dock. And, And you can tell students that are really into it. And they understand that you're gonna make or break your business at the back door as well as the front. And they're down here watching the dock and watching how they check product and produce and learning about it by just being here. Right. And my, my team here will answer any question to any student And they all know
2: the doc and they all know the issue. So if you're a CIA student and you're listening, come down and knock on Brad's door. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure.
4: I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob?
5: To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills?
4: How old are we talking here?
5: Well... The stone mills are practically as old as mankind. And no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte. And it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire of which you can testify by looking at at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it, it's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old, so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything.
4: Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael,
5: we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at
4: bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: All right, we are back. In the second half of the show, we are going to be hearing from Jeff Menard. So without further ado, here's that tape. All right, so we're continuing our uh, tour of the, the CIA. I'm sitting um, in the basement here with Jeffrey Menard. He is a buyer here at the CIA. His kind of area of purview is non-perishable items, but he also covers uh, a lot of the dairy that's bought by the institution and some of the kind of non-specialty cheese items. So obviously New York State um, and this region has a long history as a dairy-producing state. Yeah, so sure. it, does that kind of um translate into I mean I feel like dairy especially fluid milk it's like a perishable item so by its nature. Yeah. You're yeah. kind of looking at local stuff. Yeah,
4: local stuff. We do a lot with uh Hudson Valley Fresh uh which is a great co-op of local dairy farmers who kind of all merge together and sell their product. Um also with Ronnie Brook Farms. Uh we do some of their their products as well. Um and then Feather Ridge Farm for all our shell eggs. Uh, we did, I think, a million and a half shell eggs last year. Wow! So it's yeah, it's a quite a large volume.
2: Um, that yeah. so, and then so when you're so, I always think it's interesting. Like for someone who's like so directly in the buying space, so like when you show up, you know, it's Tuesday today. You show up at work. Like, can you give us a little bit of a sense of like, just kind of what your day looks like? What are you reading first thing? What's kind of on your like daily to do list?
4: Um, usually I come in. Uh, first thing, you know, check your email, see if chef chef's looking for something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of put that on the on the list of things for to do for the day. Um, and then we do inventories. Uh, checking the produce truck is first and foremost. Uh, they're here usually at quarter to seven. Um, and then we check all that in and then kind of go about, uh, fill the orders that are maybe missing a product for the chef, do that. And then we kind of do our daily purchasing, um, getting... Doing our orders, talking to vendors, seeing when we're expecting a product if it's out, just kind of follow up and kind of always keep keep things moving. It's it's just we gotta you can't stop. You just gotta keep it keep it going forward. It's always yeah, it's always something else. There's always something crazy you gotta find. When you <laughs> needed it yesterday, of course, but sure. yeah, you're always you're always always running.
2: Lots of balls in the air, and I think too. Um, just because we're, uh, you know, outside of the city doesn't mean that, like, space still isn't uh, constraint. So can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, like, product rotation, especially dealing with something like dairy? Like, how frequently are you getting things in because you can store them or...?
4: Um, things like dairy, we get our egg delivery uh, about twice a week, which usually contains uh, 40 cases and 30 dozen a case. Um, we get that twice a week. Uh, Most of the dairy we can have here between two and three times a week. Um, If we run short, they're pretty good about uh, bringing us something. Uh, But a lot of the local stuff is produced to demand. Mm -hmm. So, like when we place our order, we place it's usually three days out from when we need it. So then they basically produce to demand. So it's and it's interesting because we get affected by the public school system that buys the product because then there's not enough milk that they are using to to provide everything else so it's kind of we run into a little problem in the summertime but it we make up with other people and it works out
2: yeah so it's always like a little bit of a balancing act can and then one of the other things is like you're obviously um, ensuring kind of the quality of the incoming product so mm. can you talk a little bit about like how do you handle when something's like not quite right
4: um most of our vendors if not all of our vendors if something comes in and we don't think we can use it in the sufficient amount of time if it looks a little questionable or if it's just questionable at all, um, we can send it back. We can write a credit. Uh, Most of them will gladly replace uh, the product if it comes in and it's questionable. Um, We've had vendors bring us some back later that day. If we get something that we're not happy with, they'll go back and swap out and get, get us something better that meets our standards. Yeah. Um, which is, it's good. I mean, and that's all building relationships with them over the years that they know that we're a good customer and we'll continually purchase from them and they kind of make it right. And
2: yeah. It helps a lot. Well, I think like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, uh, you're looking for consistency, but you're also dealing with agriculture products. Mm. So like there is like, there's a range, right?
4: Oh, there is. There is. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes, I mean, it grows in nature. So, I mean, some weeks, think like a, like. I mean, a beet, it could be the size of a golf ball or the size of a softball, depending upon weeks of of growing. And I mean, you got to kind of make variances and make communications to the kitchen that they know they're going to get large beets as opposed to semi-large beets, so they know how many to use and prepare and what they're looking for. So it's...
2: I think that, um, you know, when people think about pursuing a career in culinary and that like purchasing is probably not at the top of most people's lists it's not necessarily the glamour position mm-hmm. but it's like ultimately the decision that is really determining so much of what's allowed to happen at an institution or in a restaurant because uh, you can't make great food with if, if you don't have good ingredients and you can't have a sustainable business if you can't hit your food costs um so if you can talk a little bit about like what Types of things like drew you to the role and what your background was, kind of like how you got into this?
4: Oh, it's kind of uh, I started here of uh, like growing up, I worked in some delis, uh, grocery store kind of through high school. Um, and then I like came on the CIA in 2001 as a just a storeroom clerk working on the floor filling orders. Um, and then then I kind of transitioned into the role of purchasing. It's kind of uh, I have no. No formal education, um, just education through working in this industry um, since I was like 15 years old uh, wow. up until now. So that sounds
2: like a lot of education. Yeah, yeah. Actually. So <laughs> it's I mean it's it's funny
4: because when you say oh I'm not formally trained, but then it's I mean you have the the background of working in this food industry and growing up in this area. I mean you always had farmers markets and the access to to good food and good produce in the summertime and and stuff like that so
2: are there like i'm curious are there like um i want to say it's not like buyer's clubs but like it like in the purchasing kind of like industry when you're going like are there kind of trade magazines or conferences or chat boards or like is there like a place that like other people in your position in different areas where you kind of i don't know Exchange. That's, uh, a,
4: that's a good one. I haven't really, honestly, have a, haven't explored that. Yeah. Um, a lot of it's neat when we go to, like, food shows, you run into other people um, that you know from the industry, and they, they're kind of buyers on different levels. So, I mean, some of our vendors and then their buyers, so you get to talk with them a little bit, and it's kind of like you just kind of, yeah, just see what's going on and what they have to say, and you kind of, yeah, just go, go that way. Go that way, yeah. 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 And
2: then thinking about kind of uh like food kind of coming back to that conversation around food cost and Mm -hmm. price um can you talk a little bit about like how you make decisions um between kind of the quality like there's there's kind of quality and price and relationship and uh, availability like is there a, a a way that you kind of balance those metrics against each other or like if you're going to decide to purchase something like regionally like how do you how do you decide like where to shift with stuff
4: um, like if it's certainly if it's an in-season product um we try to get it from a local farmer and we do we'll pay a, a percentage over what we would normally pay um just to kind of keep that um it's not a exact i don't know exact percentages but maybe 20 percent more mm-hmm. um on on the products because i mean i mean of the time I mean you can't beat the the local product I mean in in taste flavor just even quality I mean some of the stuff I mean it comes out I know Brad's probably mentioned comes out of the field sometimes in that morning and it's at our dock so it's I mean just to to pay that little bit extra for something that you know is going to last and and you know it came from I mean sometimes 15 minutes down the road that's it's a a good so then that's how we kind of balance it price-wise um, and just look at it. if it's in season, it should be a little less expensive than out of season. But I mean, there are sometimes when we need something that's out of season and it's eleven dollars a pound, and normally in season it's six dollars a pound. But chef needs it, you, can, you have to make the yeah. make the call and the just let him know that it, you're paying this x amount of dollars. If if that's okay with your food cost, and so it's, that's that's kind of how we do it.
2: One of the things I hear from you know dairy farmers is just the challenge of kind of milk pricing and I think one of the things that's hard for folks to really wrap their heads around is like the way milk prices are are set in this country are really impacted by stuff that's happening all over the world Mm -hmm. and that like dairy farmers in particular are like I like one farmer she's like I'm a price taker not a price maker which Mm -hmm. means like her she's kind of getting what she gets. She doesn't have much leverage to demand a different price. And so I'm curious on the purchasing side of that, like how often do you see fluctuations if you're looking at, at dairy prices? And is there a sense like, is there a seasonal nature to that? Is there uh, shortages that have come up in, over your tenure where you're like ah oh, milk got really expensive or, you know do you track that like the way a lot of people track like you know gasoline prices um
4: not we do we do look at it um usually I mean it's kind of a market thing I mean mm-hmm. if we see it coming down 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 the line that there might be a little bump in price which is kind of good we do follow some uh, like trade and we get a market report of like what we can expect even the the farmer themselves will be like listen it's we're kind of production's down we need to kind of juggle the numbers a little bit and you you work with them i mean they have to make a living too so it's like i mean you're not going to say no we're not going to buy your product sure because they i mean they do have a a living to make and and then we do like i said look at market reports from the government even i mean the usda puts out like pricing commodity pricing and and stuff and a lot of that falls into that so
2: and like when people like when people, when you're like entering a new buying relationship with someone, um, I know for if you're not like for, for an individual restaurant, like depending on your size, depending on uh, kind of what you're trying to do, you know, you have like different HACCP plans. You mm-hmm. need to be have different levels of traceability, uh, or or to be purchasing from people at different levels of kind of like liability, uh, insurance and whatnot. Do you, um, well, when people, when you're purchasing from someone, like, what are some of the constraints to that relationship?
4: Um, we, we definitely look into that. I mean, the HACCP thing is huge. Um, a lot of those, those smaller farmers uh, benefit from, like, a larger co-op that purchases because they kind of, it, it limits their liability. It mm-hmm. kind of all falls under the big umbrella. So we look at that. Um, just do a little research if a new vendor wants to come in. Uh, we just kind of do a little background check a little internet detecting to kind yeah. of see if we can find anything about them or i mean even a lot of vendors come from other vendors that they've done we've done business with like that they think they might be a good fit for us so it kind of it comes on a recommendation we'll check them out and yeah. and go that way and but like yeah the hassle plans and all that i mean we just kind of i mean with this day and age with everything and just kind of you got to be really vigilant and see make sure you know where it's coming from and keep a track keep track of it and.
2: yeah so what is the, like, what, I mean, what is the school, so, I mean, I'm assuming that you guys would fall under the regional, like, health department here as far as, like, just like a restaurant would get a health department inspection, mm-hmm. a similar thing for. Yes, yes.
4: Yeah, there. we do. The county comes in, Duchess County, they do, they have the health inspector comes in, the state comes in, um, and they do. I mean, we're not exempt from any of that. They check everything. They yeah. go, go through the coolers, take temps, and make sure stuff's stored properly, all the sanitation and hygiene and, and whatnot is there. I mean, we are a public restaurant. We do have public restaurants. So, I mean, we are serving to the public. So we have to adhere to all that, the same rules and guidelines as everybody else. Everyone else.
2: What, um, have the, has there been uh, anything because you're getting to work with chefs who are producing menus from cuisines all over the world, has, has anything kind of come onto your radar that like now you're buying at home or cooking with or thinking about that you learned about? Because um, you bought it, you're like, whoa, oh, what's that?
4: We used—one of the chefs wanted these long peppercorns. They're like a—they almost look like a little pine cone. Mm, uh, yeah. I know it's kind of hard to explain, but like a—
2: Yeah, it's like a Bal- Balinese long pepper. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I
4: was like, man, that's those are crazy, and I tried it. And chef's like, here, just break off a little piece and try it, and I tried it. I was like, it blew my mind, and then I bought some, and like, it's just one of those things that like for a added little zip sometimes, you're making something, and you just throw a little bit in there to kind of like— just a little. It's a real intense pepper, but it, it just—it's a—it's a pretty wild taste. So
2: awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much. been great oh, chatting with you. I really appreciate likewise. it. Likewise, thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Farm Report. Thank you so much for tuning in. It was great to share some of these recordings with you. A big thanks to uh, Jeff Levine up at the Culinary Institute who helped coordinate our trip. I went up with a couple of other heritage hosts. You can look across the network to hear a little bit more um, some of the different stuff they have going on up at the CIA, and, and stay tuned. Uh, I have one more set of interviews from our trip that I'll be bringing you later this year. Very interesting stuff from the school's uh, local anthropologists and uh, archaeologists kind of unexpected expertise that was really uh, thrilling conversations and we'll have those episodes for you coming up later in the year. This of course like all of the Heritage Radio Network programs was brought to you with support from our wonderful underwriters and from listeners like you. Uh, We really count on your support to keep us on the airwaves. And I would love to see your names on our donor roll. So if you can hear my voice, which I know you can because you're hearing it it's happening, uh, visit the website. Click that beating heart on the top right-hand corner and drop us a couple of bucks. Show your support. I would love to know that Farm Report listeners are out there and pitching in to keep us on air. Thanks a lot, guys. Stay tuned, and we will talk to you next week.